Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and an unsolved mystery from my youth is when I was 14 at a Christmas party, my extended family lost a whole tureen of clam chowder, and we have not found it to this day. Oh my goodness. You lost it? We lost it. How do you lose a tureen of anything? (laughs) It's lost. It's a mystery. That's why they call it a mystery. (laughs) I'm Kristen, and when I was in second or third grade, I got called to the office because somebody had left me a stuffed bear and some flowers and said that it was from a secret admirer, and I don't know who the admirer was. Oh, too secret. And my parents say it's not them, so it must have been somebody real. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Caitlin, and an unsolved mystery from my life. So when I was 18, I taught English out in Western China, and I bought this really cool, like, hand-woven shawl with lace and stuff on it out there, and it disappeared from my room, and I never found it. I like, you know, like when you pack everything up in a room and there's nothing left, it wasn't there. Oh, no. I, th- I think the shawl and the tureen ended up in the same place. It's I know. <laughs> it smells like clam chowder. <laughs> I'm Erin, and a mystery from my life is about 15, 17 years ago when the kids were little, we lost the top of a um, one of those sippy cups in a couch, and we never found it again. And we moved like five times, and we turned that couch upside down, all every time and we searched everywhere and that sippy cup top never came out of it (laughs) (laughs) the dearly deceased sippy cup lid that's so sad (laughs) it's because a mal lives in there and ate it like from um what's that called a deadly education except that the couch monster is in the second one the last graduate anyway (laughs) and it tried to eat people not just sippy cups but you know next level I've lost things things in couches, too. Like, couches eat things and washing machines. Well, we actually, mm-hmm. we sold the couch to somebody, and I told them about it. I was like, if you ever find a civvy cup top in there, <laughs> sorry. For free, it's the couch. You. <laughs> if you need to get rid of a body, just stuff it down there. We'll come back out. <laughs> well, a big welcome to Aaron Beatty, the author of the Traitor's Circle trilogy and the upcoming Blood and Moonlight. Aaron, we're so excited to have you on. Uh, tell us a little bit about Blood and Moonlight. Okay, so if I want to describe it in three words, it would be magic, murder, and moonlight. It's about a girl who lives in magical medieval France, and she works as a building inspector for an architect when they're building one of those big cathedrals in the middle of the town and one night she's behind on her work and she has to do her inspection by moonlight and she hears a scream and she sees a man running through the square. Her instincts lead her to this body in an alley and she ends up tied up in this investigation because the woman that was murdered was at the architect's house that night. So she's at first she's worried does anyone know that she was there and then um, so she gets involved in the investigation one of the local magistrate, the provost, his one of his sons is kind of involved in it, so he assigns a family member to investigate. And this guy is a stranger, but he knows a little bit too much about how a psychopath thinks. She gets all tied up in that. And she oh and, and in all this she starts to realize that she has magical powers. Nice. Awesome. I love serial killer books. Do they aid in the investigation? Yes, though? they do. Nice. And remind me the release date on that. Uh, June twenty eighth. It'll come out the day before we 
before we post the episode. So so it'll be out and ready to be purchased. Keep an eye out for that. And that's a great setup to what we wanted to talk about on today's episode, which is raising your stories IQ, aka what to do when you want your story to be smarter than you are. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this is probably a common problem every author's run into. You write yourself into a corner or you come up with a problem that's too clever for you to solve. So we want to talk about today is how we can work through that. So make your story smart. The flip side of that question is how do you make your story smart enough that not everyone can solve it the minute they start reading it? So true. So so how do you come up with a mystery and a plot that is clever? That seems like a good place to start. I always start with the end in mind. I'm, I'm not that much of a discovery writer, although the journey is a big discovery. I always know the twist going into it, but I write myself in the corners all the time. <laughs> and I have to back out. But I kind of I kind of notice when it's starting to happen. It's like driving a car where everything starts to get really loose. And you're like, oh, maybe I should back up and tighten things a bit. So what do you do when, when you've written yourself into a corner? You said you, you back up and you tighten things up a little bit. Do you end up actually backing away from the plot points? Or do you end up looking at it and thinking, so like, what do I have in the story that could solve this? Or what character could be a part of this? Or what B plot part could come in and, and fix this A plot point? How do, how do you approach it? So it's actually been a combination of all of those for me. Sometimes I have to talk to my agent and she's like, well, duh, the solution is right here. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really cool when you've written something into the story that becomes part of the solution without you even realizing it. So that that's, that's when it's really fun. But um, sometimes you're just like way going off in the wrong direction. And that's, I think that's what happened with what I'm writing right now. And I talked to my editor and he's like, this is where it's, you're just, no, we can't go there. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, but that, that actually helped because then I was able, it was so different that I was actually able to back up a whole lot more. And then it was able to discard a lot of the things that were going wrong. A major change is actually good in that sense, because then you can really throw everything away. You don't have to salvage too much. Mm-hmm. See, I feel like I get into that situation all the time when I write because I try really hard to outline, but I always end up in discovery writing space. Like, I just wish I was. I used to have, like, this last book that I just turned in. I had this big piece of butcher paper on my wall with sticky notes on it that said, here are the plot beats. Here's how we're solving the mystery. And I always end up writing like big, huge circles around them. And so it's really nice to be able to hear that someone else has to throw out huge parts of their story in order for it to make sense. That's it. That's because exactly that's always what I end up doing. To me, like yeah. I outline and then I just go off. I think there's something to be said for collaboration, I guess, because you mentioned that you talk with your agent and your editor and people starting out obviously don't have those things. But if you've got writing partners or even somebody who just is very patient and can listen to you talk through your plot, I found that really helpful. Like I, I think I spent like half an hour chatting at one of my roommates the other day to figure out a solution. And I think that helps a lot, honestly, is you have more time to come up with an answer than your characters do. And Mm -hmm. you have the benefit of being able to go back in and sort of seed your story with whatever evidence or clues you need. And that is really nice to help create a story that feels smart and tight, even if it took you like five years to come up with those, those twists. I don't know if you know, computer programmers have what they, the rubber duck solution. Do you guys know what that is? But they have a little rubber duck 
on their desk and when they have a problem they just try to explain everything to this rubber duck about how it's supposed to work out and then in doing that it tends to help them figure out where the problem in their programming is so i have a little stuffed hedgehog that i talk to all the time (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) that's fantastic so i've heard this advice before that you mentioned Kristen, that you can always go back and input the clues you need earlier on. And with that, I think a a problem a lot of authors run into is feeling like those clues that they've planted are then too obvious. What would we say to authors who maybe are asking how to make their solutions not seem obvious when they feel obvious to them as they're writing? Well, I would say writing is rewriting. So, you know, you can always take things out or put things back in constantly. Something that I think that is really helpful is you have like a couple of different tools that help like divert your uh, your reader's attention where they think they know the answer or like red herrings or like even the narrative you've built from the character's perspective based on their own biases or their own like information that they have. If you withhold key pieces of information so the character can't put it together, the reader won't be able to either. Like it's the key piece or if you have a narrative built up in their head, that's the correct one, even if it's totally wrong the reader will go along with them. I always think of the Queen's Thief series because I think um, Megan Whalen Turner does an excellent job with this. But like in the first book, spoiler alert, if you haven't read The Thief, but it came out in like the 90s, so no excuses. (laughs) Um, In the first book, you are presented with a thing you don't even realize is a mystery because you are just allowed to assume that the reason one of the characters acts the way he does is because he's poor and he's blah and blah and blah and so you just you just automatically assume the story because that is what the clues suggest and at the end when that twist is revealed you realize that you were relying on your own assumption rather than the actual evidence in front of you and I I think there's something to be said for planting whatever you need to I guess within reason to (laughs) to allow your readers to assume something different than what what you want to be the truth so just making sure there are multiple explanations possible I think goes to help with with red herrings yeah and so beta readers or you know alpha readers whatever level you're at are so key with things like that because when when we're writing we're so in our heads and we know the end or we don't know the end we think things over so things can feel really obvious to us it's really good to get you know that stuffed hedgehog and a human person to read your story to um, have the outside perspective and be able to tell you yeah, you know what? This was slapping me in the face. I knew it from the beginning. Or actually, that was really subtle. Nice job, which is what we're going for. My stuffed hedgehog is my husband. He just needs <laughs> to sit quietly while I talk at him. Um, something else that really helps me, at least with mysteries and stuff, is to go read other people's work or to go watch other things. Like if you've ever seen any crime TV show where there's like a series long arc where they're slowly building clues. Like every mystery TV show, you have like the the episode mystery they have to solve plus like the series long one that they're slowly building into. Like one of my favorites when I was younger was Veronica Mars, where the whole time we're trying to figure out who killed, uh, what's her friend's name, Lily? I forget. Anyway, and that's a a classic key information withheld one where we know that all these pieces are almost together, but they don't have the key information until like the last episode. But in that one, 
she comes to the conclusion that a lot of different people are the murderer. And it's always right when that person is like with someone she loves. She's like, oh my gosh, it's it's her ex-boyfriend and her ex-boyfriend is with my best friend at the beach right now. You know, like there's a lot of tension on top of it because not only did I just realize this person I trusted probably murdered my best friend, but he's in a position to now do it to somebody else. And so I think that reveal of information where it's like too late is is really great in mystery. I may or may not have done that in Blood and Moonlight like three or four times. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. How can you pull off all the cool things when your character is smarter than you are? So I think what we're getting at by that question is you have a really competent character and maybe you're not so competent in that field or, you know, in life in general. Uh, What can we do there? (laughs) Leah doesn't think any of us can take care of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that in so many ways. I think I think I think about um, like TV shows a lot when I think about this because they have a much easier job in some aspects. Where like if you're watching a space opera and somebody is the engineer, they can just like babble some stuff at you, and you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But if you're writing from the point of view of the engineer, you have a very different job than. Yeah. than otherwise so I my solution is not a good solution which is to find a point of view <laughs> character who is not an expert in those topics and have them be an expert in things I am capable of being an expert in but uh that that's not gonna work for every story you're always Watson <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> here's something I've been thinking about recently for me the strongest solutions always come with emotional tie-in so they're not just the physical breakthrough of oh my goodness, we have to tear out the motherboard before the alien takes over. They come with the realization of, oh my gosh, I totally betrayed my mom and now I've broken through this emotional wall. And so we're always told to write what we know. And I don't know engineering, but I do know, you know, emotions. I know happiness. I know fear. I know grief. And so I think with these solutions, the more you can wait that part of the solution, the more authentic it feels. Because that's something we're all very familiar with. That's something the readers are familiar with. And so they won't have to have technical understanding. And you won't have to have technical understanding quite to that level. It doesn't solve all problems, but it's kind of a an angle to take some of the pressure off. One of the things I like to do is you do a bunch of research and you find something that you can explain, that you can understand, and then that you can explain back to the reader in simple enough terms that the reader thinks that you know more than you do or that your character knows more than they know because they only know what you know. But if you establish early on some kind, some smartness, then they'll kind of trust you from there on. They do that all the time in, in movies where they introduce an engineer character. They're always like doing something brilliant and fixing something right away. And then from then on, you're like, all right, I'm going to believe when they start spouting all this technical jargon that they know what they're saying and I'm just going to go with it. That's kind of cheating, but... (laughs) It works for other types of characters, too, though. Because, like, if you think of Six of Crows, you're introduced to Kaz by having the miniature little episode where he is terrifying and competent. And so you believe that he will be terrifying and competent for the rest of the book. Well, and also that he takes really terrible risks. Yeah, totally. Which makes him interesting to read about. Well, and then when he does do something, like, horrible, terrible, like, physically then you're not that surprised. But then also when he does things that are very human, then then that's even more surprising. So it, it creates a nice contrast in what you've made the reader expect. Yes, exactly. I think you do a really good job of this, Erin. Like in the Trader Circle trilogy, Sage is an extremely competent character and you start 
with her being that way. Like, um, she's a very good at reading people, reading clues type of character who's going to go in and do stuff no matter what anybody else says. And I'm, I haven't gotten to read your new one yet, but I'm super excited about it because I love that about your characters. Well, I had to learn a lot about serial killers and more than I actually wanted yes. to know. I know, right? <laughs> serial killers give me nightmares. I was thinking about this, too, because my latest book, my characters are all way smarter than I am. I I feel like in fantasy especially, readers don't just want the characters to figure it out. They want, like, sparkle, sparkle, explosion, you know? And I'm like, I don't know how to make the sparkle, sparkle, explosion. I don't have magic. And so, you know, you have to... Like, coming up with those things is really difficult, but I do think that if you rely on the talents that you have established in your characters, like, you know, like, the engineer and the the communications expert, like, um, in, um... The hacker, yes. And we, we keep referencing sci-fi, but I was thinking about Aurora Rising, where you have very set skilled. I mean, that's a very specific kind of a book, but they're, each character has a specific skill set. And so whenever they get into a situation where they need to schmooze somebody, it goes to Scarlet. If they need to engineer something, it goes to, what's his name? The one with the white hair. If they need to cut off something's head, it goes to the space elf. You know, like it's, they're all specific those talents work. And so as a writer, if you have those tools, you can be like, do I need to cut off something's head? Do I need to engineer this? Do I need to have sparkly magic? Like if you have all those things established and like you were saying, if you, if you go back into the the details that you've already given the reader, then you can pull them back in and make them relevant in order to fix your story in the corner you've written yourself into you know that, like, to make it sparkly and fun. Mickey, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or like any kids show where they're like, which thing will solve this problem? <laughs> You're just doing that on a bigger scale. <laughs> yeah. If it's something that you can experience for yourself, I highly suggest doing it. If it's like using a bow and arrow or, you know, riding a horse, try to get at least something out of it. Uh, or, you know, go to a boxing club if one, if there's a fight scene in there and know what it's like to hit someone in the face, you know, or get hit in the face. Or how to shoot a gun or an arrow. And then you can find like all the little details that can make it just a little bit more real. Like, so you go to the boxing gym for a day and you learn what it's like and you hear the noises and you smell the smells. And I, I told a friend of mine who was writing a boxing scene, I was like, those gloves that they give you, they stink so bad. And she went to the gym and she was like, oh yeah, that is. And then she put that in the book and like 20 people mentioned it to her like, that that was something so specific to that that gave the reader a sense that she actually knew what it was like to be a boxer, even if she went there for, you know, an hour. That's great advice. Go live life and write it down. (laughs) Now we move on to the portion of the podcast where we critique an audience submission. So if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, you can view that on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. A quick summary of this week's chapter. While watching a TV interview about leaders of a new lifestyle movement her sister is part of, Raylan calls them out as a cult. What are some things we liked about the submission? I really like the premise because I've been watching those shows on Netflix about Scientology and all that stuff. So that really got my interest. And I was like, ooh, this is something that I would really like to read about. And the idea of rescuing a family member from a cult. You see all those shows and all the horrible, the agonies that all these people go through. So, you know, there's a lot of potential there right away. I really enjoyed that too. I think there are a lot of directions this can go, which is fun. I, like I personally, I, I'm hoping for some sci-fi body snatcher stuff, but like if it's a straight thriller, 
I'm cool with that. Like, there are a lot of interesting story beats that can play out from a beginning like this one. Mm -hmm. I really liked some of the voice. There's some fun little voicey moments in here. And it's a really interesting premise, too, because it doesn't sound like a cult from the outside. It sounds like a society trying to go back to, like... It sounds like a cult, Using their hands. No, I mean, they're like, you get to knit. (laughs) Okay, fine. A knitting cult. A knitting cult. I would like to be in a knitting cult. Thank you very much. (laughs) I... (laughs) I'm going to start one. I have to find a charismatic leader first, though. I think that uh, I, I agree that there are lots of different ways that it can go. And I'm really interested to find out why the character thinks it is a cult and what they what it's doing to her sister. And why nobody else thinks it is. Yeah. I mean, it seems like her parents are super into it. They're like, our daughter's on TV. Yay. And that's all they're interested in. I hate so. to bring everything back to Animorphs, but Animorphs <laughs> is all I'm going to say to that. I, I know the sharing when I see it. <laughs> you don't trust it. <laughs> Well, we should probably move on to things that might need a second look. Um, Is there anything that stood out to you, Erin? It was a little bit of a a slow start. And I think with the jumping into the constant news and back, that's a good technique. But it did start to feel a little info dumpy. And I wanted more reactions from the character and more of her correcting what she was hearing. Not just saying, oh, that's not true, but telling me why. It wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know a little bit more about how how the family felt about it. I felt that they were just watching but not saying enough yet. Yeah, I'll totally agree. I, I think it would be helpful to know why the main character and her family is interested in watching this interview earlier. We see a lot of angst from Raylan about it. But we don't find out that the angst is because her sister has been like led away by these people until... What I I personally, as a reader, felt was too late. Um, I think if you can connect all of that emotion to like a a solid physical reason earlier, you're going to have a more interesting read for your average reader because you're they're going to be feeling tension um, about the same thing Raylan is feeling tension about. Yeah, um, I think that the way this reads right now is all of the quotes that are coming from the TV, it sounds like a morning show interview, and it doesn't sound like it's saying anything that's too nefarious or weird, and I, we haven't gotten a, a big emotional response, just that she's annoyed that it's on TV, and she's annoyed at her parents for watching it, and when her sister comes in, I'm like, oh, oh, this is like a I need to save my sister thing, but that doesn't happen for a couple of pages, so. And we... we get told that Diana, the sister, has been part of this cult for, like, several years, I think. And that makes me wonder, like, what has changed that Raylan decides that she needs to rescue her sister now? Why hasn't she done this earlier? What about this interview is the thing that has clued her into the fact that, like, her sister needs rescuing at all? Why does it change from, this is a difficult thing in my family, to, I need to act right now? Yeah, exactly. I think it it's it kind of starts bland like you know she's like you said she was annoyed that they were watching it but I think that and then maybe this is prescriptive but I think the writer could start with a whole lot more tension in the beginning like the show is coming on will I see her will she will they will we actually get to talk to her like some anticipation and then like oh my god there she is there she is and everyone being like shut up shut up you know Something, um, she just isn't interested until she sees her sister, but she should be, like, this is a chance that we might actually see her. She put that out front, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too. I'm like, is she glad her sister has all her limbs? Is this the first time she's seen her in years? Like, what is she looking for here? If this, if she doesn't get to see her sister, usually because she's a part of a cult. 
feel free to disagree with me on this. I'd really love to know your opinions. I I thought this information about white spots on Diana's eyes and on Raylan's eyes was maybe a little jarring just because the way it's presented is so casual, but it's so different in like tone and nature from anything else in these pages that like it felt a little gorilla in a phone boothy where like it drew all of my attention and I'm not sure that it was supposed to draw that much of my attention. I was very confused by it, but I'm curious, but very confused. Well, even the way it was put, like the first sentence it comes in, this is line level. I wasn't sure what she was talking about at first. Like the white spots on the eyes. I was like, is she talking about glare? Is she talking like what, what's going on? And then because it kind of gets dismissed, she's like, my mom tried to figure it out, but it was nothing. And so when it happened to me, it was nothing, but they're gone. So like, it seems like the only thing that's interesting about it to her is that they're gone when I'm interested in a lot more than that. So yeah. Yeah. Like, like it almost seemed like it was signaling a different genre than what I had thought it was. And I I couldn't tell what I was supposed to be getting from it. So I don't think, um, is there anything that we want to... Well, I didn't understand how old anybody was. And that was a little bit jarring. There needed to be a little bit more clues to that, I guess. I will say that the first couple of paragraphs aren't super grounded. It starts with a quote from the TV and that was a little bit difficult to follow because I don't have any context for where this quote is coming from and it doesn't seem to be leading in any direction because like I said, it's a morning show. Yay. And I think that some of those details, uh, like Erin is mentioning, like uh, who's our main character, where are they sitting, how old are they, all that stuff. It'd be really great to have that at the very beginning so at least we know what we're dealing with. Thank you so much to this writer for submitting your work. We loved reading it for you. It's really cool. And best of luck in your revisions. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We always love to have Erin on. You've come on the show a couple of times, so it's kind of fun to have you back. Nice to be back. We're really excited for your new book. Everybody be sure to go check out Blood and Moonlight. Please also go check out our online store where we have um, special editions for our guests this fall, Stephanie Garber and Marissa Meyer, that are available for pre-order right now. Stephanie Garber's edges are up now, the, the sprayed edges that we're doing, so you can go look at those if you would like, but Marissa's are not yet. So if you are not yet subscribed to our newsletter and you would like to see them first, please do so. And I think that's it. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.